1: With the potential of commentary by Fed Chair Janet Yellen later this week that may hint at a rise in interest rates this month, focus in the financial community is again on the Fed. But from a historical perspective, do you know how the Fed got started? Roger Lowenstein is a former reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He has written several books on the finance world, including books called Buffett, When Genius Failed, and The End of Wall Street, amongst others. He writes about the events that brought us a U.S. central bank back in the early 1900s in his book *America's Bank*. And he joins us on the show right now. Roger, thanks very much for coming on. Dan,
0: it's a pleasure to be on the
1: show. First of all, congratulations on the book.
0: Second, oh, thanks so much.
1: Second, congratulations on your review in the Sunday New York Times. I feel like that's that's like the the, the next step in the big process. Once you get that that New York Times review, you're really you're really uh, really on the high road.
0: That was a very nice review, thanks by by Bob Rubin that that uh, ran on the cover. Uh, I have to say, I'm still scratching my head about those uh, Christmas lights in Canberra, <laughs> but, but I'm gonna get around to the federal reserve. So you know, you go ahead with questions. Well,
1: you're, as I was gonna say, while while I'm asking you questions, you just search down there in Canberra and you'll find it. That's right. Uh, but for those people that really don't, let's kind of set a historical context here because we're talking about a time period: the late 1800s, the early 1900s where you had a lot of different things kind of going on there there had been an attempt at a central bank back in around what the thirty five, uh but that kind of got squashed explain what was kind of the background at the late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds to really want to have a and need to have a central bank
0: sure uh, Dan, you know the america of the let's put it in the first decade of the nineteen hundreds was visibly in transition it was the economy was industrializing; factories were sprouting up. People were moving from the farm to the city. Uh, you suddenly heard all sorts of new languages in the streets. Uh, you know, immigrants were swelling the population. Uh, the democracy, which had once been a very elitist affair, with uh, didn't have things like direct primaries or, or a direct election of senators, that was all changing. There was one way in which we were held back, and we had a very archaic financial system, one that was still designed. Uh, for a, a primarily agrarian, less developed, you know, early 19th century uh, farming country, and uh, unlike any other, the industrialized countries in the world, we did not have a central bank. We had no central place that could lend out money to banks when the uh, society was short of credit or hold excess reserves. And uh, because of this deficit, time and again, we would have these money panics where people would run to the bank take out their money, the system would freeze up, there would be no credit, and uh, you know people in Europe uh, couldn't believe that this otherwise uh, modern industrial country was so, uh, frankly, primitive. But uh, that was the context for this story.
1: 1907 was was really one of the, the important years uh, where this process went along because of the fact that there was so much concern about the banking industry.
0: That's right. And, you know, there had been warnings... Um, about the American system in particular, from uh, one of the, the people I, one of the main characters of the book, a fellow named Paul Warburg, who was an immigrant yep. from Germany, a banker, and therefore could recognize how different uh, America's system and, frankly, how deficient it was compared to the systems in Europe. But no one really paid attention until uh, the year you uh, cite, 1907, when we had a really terrible banking panic. And, and in many ways, It it was suggestive of the financial panic that Americans experienced uh, quite recently, in in 2008. Uh, The bank runs in in 1907 weren't bank runs on a computer screen. They were uh, real bank runs, where people ran down the sidewalk carrying uh, satchels with which they hoped to (laughs) retrieve their money. And when the the bank ran out, you you were done. That was it. The, The other big difference, of course, was there was no lender of last resort yep. no ben bernanke no federal reserve to come in and say you know the pain's got to stop somewhere someone's got to start lending because none of the private banks are lending and um th- this you know th- this became the the cauldron, so to speak, would convince many people uh, that we had to have some sort of reform.
1: What was it that, that Mr. Warburg, who, who you mentioned was a, a German national at, that had come over to the United States, what was it that he noticed that uh, that really kind of wanted him to try and help and spur the change that, that needed to happen here? Because when you're thinking about the, the world at that time, I mean, certainly Europe was a little bit different, but seemingly were they that much different in terms of their entire operations than what the U.S. was w- had at that point?
0: You know, they really were. And Warburg, although uh, English was his second language, he was very vivid uh, and, and a very powerful writer, even in English. And he used the metaphor of a town Without a reservoir, a water reservoir in which uh, each town, uh, you know, maybe had its own little well in the backyard, but you can see how that wouldn't be adequate for uh, drinking needs. Maybe some streets would run dry. Maybe there'd be a fire, and they need to centralize reserves. Uh, You know, just a little well each family wouldn't do it. This was the condition of the American banking system when um as i said he was largely ignored and completely ignored by uh, the political system until the panic uh, after 1907 however people began to take note and there was actually a an expedition of um congressmen led by a very powerful senator named Nelson Aldrich uh... senator uh, chairman of the senate finance committee from yep. Rhode Island they went to europe to see uh, if you know in, in effect to see what warburg said was correct they investigated uh, the central banks of uh, uh, England, France, Germany. They interviewed over 50 bankers At each in each city. They said, what happens when you guys get a panic like we just had? Yeah. And in country after country, they heard the same result. We don't have them. Our banks here feel confident. They don't have to shut down. They have a central bank they can go to when they need surplus credit.
1: The interesting thing, I kind of alluded to it at the top, and, and you talk about it, is the fact that... Uh, it wasn't the first time that the United States had tried to put together a central bank. They had done that, you know, earlier in the, in the 19th century, uh, but it, it didn't last.
0: That's right, and the reason for that, I should say that there was a reason why it didn't last and a reason why America endured so long without a central bank. And, and this really goes back to the birth of the country. You know, we're a nation that rebelled against an English, an English king, against a, a far-off central power. And you know, the very first debate, political debate, we had in this country between Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson was, should we have a strong central government or not? And the, the specific issue in which they classed was, should we have a central bank or not? And in those days, was called the Bank of the United States. And uh, Hamilton got President Washington to establish it over the very vehement objection of Thomas Jefferson. And after 20 years, it was disbanded because to... to uh, Americans from farming districts from areas far from the east coast uh, you know they just felt that a a strong federal power a, a big bank yeah. was going to be something like the, the powers they had rebelled against in England and and it didn't work very well without a central bank we had a very bad um, episode of inflation so we formed a second bank and that was the one that you referred to in the 1830s was yeah. uh, undone by president jackson a huge enemy and this debate, um, when, when he came here, Warburg said uh, "America, Americans have an abhorrence of power, whether on Wall Street or in Washington. You know, Dan, you can see that today. Obviously, there are a lot of people very upset about big banks. There are a lot of people uh, in the early 1900s, the Democratic Party. Today, it's the Tea Party wing of the Republicans. Very upset about any kind of federal power yeah and this is a debate we had in the beginning we had it in the early 1900s and we have today
1: is it surprising though that that seemingly uh, what happened back in the in the early 1900s and and some of the mistakes that were made uh, seemingly kind of ha- have similar overtones to what we saw you know six seven years ago
0: well you know Warburg used to say that he felt as though he was battling the ghost of Andrew Jackson. I mean, these um, <laughs> these battles don't go away. And, uh, you know, after the panic, I, it, it, I guess you could say, yes, it's surprising. But it's it's pretty interesting that in 1907, when there was this panic, uh, uh, president, the president at the time was Theodore Roosevelt, yep. wrote a note uh, to his brother-in-law saying, you know, this has gotten out of hand, and by which he, he went on to say, People are acting as if every bank has something rotten in it, and you know what he meant was yes, you know banks, many of them behaved badly, and there was a panic and all. But let's not string them all up. And you know I, uh, I would bet a, you know not a few bankers would would agree with that uh, sentiment today. I, I think the interesting thing is that today, you know, we had a Federal Reserve that intervened, that stopped the panic, that got the economy going again. It maybe it's not the greatest economy ever but we're down to five percent unemployment that's what it was you know more or less beforehand yeah and people still hate it you know the feds very un- the feds not unpopular today for not doing its job it's unpopular for doing its job so these these feelings are still very fresh and very raw with a uh, you know very large segment of the American public,
1: but as I think you mentioned a little bit ago, when you go back in time and you think about when uh, the the concept of the central bank was going to be brought forth in, in the early 1900s, seemingly the 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 feelings are, are just as political then as they are now with a lot of different things. Correct?
0: There was there were hugely divisive the, the political issues and and. You know, the, the, the founders of Warburg, Senator Aldrich I mentioned, and Carter Glass, who uh, listeners may know of from the Glass-Steagall Act, but this was his first major legislation, the Federal Reserve Act, were very aware of how politicized the issue was, so much so, and particularly this issue of central power, that being a, a real third rail in American politics, so much so that when Carter Glass took the, the, the first blueprint for what became the Federal Reserve Act to the president-elect, uh, Woodrow Wilson, in 1912, It was just—it was a plan for twenty reserve banks around the country. No Federal Reserve Board, no Washington angle at all. There was—it wasn't going to be federal at all. It was just going to be, you know, maybe a bank in the Rocky Mountains, a bank in
1: California,
0: and so on, around the country. And um, Wilson, who had studied, and of course, an academic before he and an historian before he became went into politics, had studied Alexander Hamilton, knew the history of the debates about the central bank, said the Glass you got to do something about centralization mm-hmm. and, and and that's why the YAC came to have this federal reserve system in washington and, and the idea was they would have a hub and spokes the reserve banks like we have today around the spread around the country with yep. uh, the, the reserve board in washington very much like the compromise in the constitution itself you know that divides power between the states and the federal government.
1: Roger Lowenstein joins us. His book is America's Bank. It is out now, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Uh, Roger, also former reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, I guess it's interesting that one of the other people that you talk about uh, being a very important piece back in the early 1900s was J.P. Morgan. Uh, and obviously, here's a guy that, that wielded a lot of power in the financial sector back in that, that part of the world, in that, That's in that right. time. So
0: when, the, when the panic of uh, 1907 uh, occurred... JP Morgan was the most powerful banker uh, on Wall Street. He, by the way, he wasn't the richest; his bank wasn't the biggest. But he had the reputation. He was the eminence, and since there was no uh, federal power to speak of, uh, he called in the other leading bankers, and they undertook the job of deciding which of the banks that were failing they should try to organize loans for, and which were basically insolvent and they should let go. And of course, this was the, um, you know, this was the job that Ben Bernanke. Undertook a century later. You know, who's worthy of a loan? Who's not? And um, in fact, Morgan was so powerful that, um, according to a report in the newspapers, I think it was the New York Times in 1907 during the Panic, they talked about how the Treasury Secretary came up from Washington to New York, met with a bunch of bankers, and as the Times said, with Mr. Morgan presiding. I mean, imagine today. You know the the head of the Morgan Bank, which would be, I guess, Jamie Dimon, presiding over the Treasury Secretary. I mean, to, you know, today would be a federal official presiding, but there was no federal financial power then to speak of. So J. P. Morgan himself presided, although he uh, helped to mitigate the panic, he didn't stop it, and he, he was so crucial. You know, he got these letters from people saying, "You stand between us and chaos." He was already 70 years old. It also telegraphed to people that, look. This country's too big, too developed, to rely on one person to, to bail out the financial system. And by the way, that one person is 70 years old. Yeah. You know, we need something a little more systemic, a little more institutional. And so in its way, Morgan's own actions help to further the argument for creating the Federal Reserve.
1: 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844 942 we're talking with roger lowenstein author of the book america's bank brian is here in philadelphia with a question brian welcome to the show
0: yes thank you go ahead I guess my question mike i guess my question would be about conflicts of interest with the federal reserve um when we look at bank crises we look at um you know the incentive you know greed usually follow, follows incentive so the question would be, who owns the Federal Reserve? And we also yeah. saw Ben Bernanke say in front of Congress you know, that uh, the Federal Reserve actually makes money in recessions. So how do we resolve this conflict that the Fed makes money in recessions, but yet through their dual mandates, they're supposed to encourage the economy to flourish? Well, to take, um, I think, really separate that into two questions the federal reserve is a bank or it's a network of banks and they own assets and uh you know it's it's a good thing actually they make money you ordinary banks can make money in recessions as well if they're careful so what what you hope that the fed does is uh, make loans to solvent entities most of its loans are the united states government but but there's no crime in it's making money and by the way uh, a good part of the profits that the federal reserve banks earn Go to the taxpayers. You know they're they're streamed up uh, to the government. So I I don't see the conflict there. The other part, the Federal Reserve banks themselves, those twelve banks around the country, uh, they pay dividends to, um, uh, to the individual banks that are members. So the you know commercial banks and other banks in their territories uh, own, if you will, or at least own a share of the profits. They're tapped at six percent, and after that they go to the federal government. Uh, the idea in in having private ownership was that, again, it was a compromise. The, the Federal Reserve was uh, very controversial. The idea of entrusting all this power to the federal government was very controversial. So the founders decided to have to compromise and say we'll have the hub in Washington, the Federal Reserve system, be fully a government entity, but have private banks, uh, who, after all, the ones putting up the capital for this system. And participating in it, uh, they will they will get a dividend to the extent that the uh, system is profitable, but only up to six percent. Uh, so it's not like, you know, they can't uh, go to town on it. And they do, after all, have their capital in that institution, so they're entitled to some return.
1: Brian, thanks very Thank much. You. Go ahead. Thanks. Thank you very much. You, I, I, I appreciate that. You got it. Thanks, Brian. Brian, uh, joining us uh, from Philadelphia, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 942 I mean, before we, we've got a few minutes left, I, I would be remiss if I didn't you know talk to you a little bit about what's going on right now with the Federal Reserve. And, you know, it's kind of been a process of uh, of wait and wait and wait and wait for several years uh, you know, obviously, any time we get close to an FOMC meeting, Wall Street ears perk up like you know, like your favorite dog coming coming in for a biscuit, you know, from from the backyard. I mean, it's it's just kind of crazy how how the Fed has really taken this this front and central role uh, with Wall Street just over the last several years.
0: Yeah, you know, Dan, I think some things are worse than the anticipation, and uh, you know, Wall Street seems to be terribly on edge now about. Or interest rates going to go up to as much as a, a quarter of one percent, or even a half, or three quarters. And you know, anyone who's followed the Fed for five, ten, or twenty years knows that the country has lived and prospered with interest rates at two percent, or four percent, or sometimes six or seven percent. And uh... you know, my guess is that Wall Street and the rest of the country will discover that it can live with interest rates above uh... this uh... unusually low. Level of close to zero percent, which of course is a residue of uh, of the financial crisis. So uh, I sort of hope that you know Janet Yellen and company uh, uh, gets on with it. Uh, I also think the you know the the last caller uh, who asked about conflict of interest, a related issue is independence of the Fed, and it's very important for the Fed to be independent of the executive of the Treasury of the White House. Uh, Every administration likes uh, interest rates to be low in a crisis the fed tends to do to walk uh, hand in foot with with the administration but now that the financial crisis is over i think it's high time for the fed to reassert its independence and you know, that may mean uh, lifting interest rates uh, sooner rather than later. Is, is Janet Yellen then the person
1: to do that? And I say that just from a from from a personality standpoint, because Ben Bernanke would seemingly may have been that person to kind of lead that push into uh, you know into that world once again. I don't know if Janet Yellen is that person.
0: Well, you know, we won't know until um, uh, until we see a few more months of her uh, in office. I guess uh, you know. Ben Bernanke, uh, you know, no one expected him to, to to take on the, you know, radical sort of uh, programs that he did. Yeah. Uh, you know, do the does the person create uh, the times or the times create the person? You know, presume that's an old uh, question, presumably some of each, but Ben Bernanke responded to his times uh and did things no one would have expected of him and and Janet Yellen it's it's, you know, uh, it's up to her now to respond to her times these times
1: but the fact that that bernanke we kind of led down the path of uh, of 0% interest rates for so long in terms of the historical perspective when you look back at, at 1907 with the banking crisis how do those two uh, those two kind of events the low interest rates now and and what happened back then how, are, is there is there kind of a, a another little path of of commonality there
0: well yeah that's a very good question the, the 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 look back in Ben Bernanke's case isn't to 1907 uh, it, it isn't part but it's it's really more sort of the great depression which was the okay. first fed's first testing ground and of course it failed it yeah. and bernanke said uh, a lot he was a scholar for many you know most of his career before he joined the federal reserve board first as the governor and then of course as chairman in 19 in 2005 the the thrust of his scholarship was that the federal reserve uh, failed to respond effectively enough uh, uh to the to the great depression he promised in a, in a now famous dinner which uh, Milton Friedman was honored he said it was our fault referring to the depression referring to the federal reserve but we won't do it again yep. and and just as famously he said you know the, the the fed will if it needs to in the future it will keep the country out of it a deflationary cycle like we had in the depression if need to uh, we'll go up in a helicopter and just drop cash you know onto the Washington Mall or whatever <laughs> you know onto Wall Street, and he got the sobriquet that then a helicopter bend, but but you know, basically, as Fed Chairman, he did everything short of of going up in that helicopter and and you're right, there was a look back and, and it was to the Great Depression.
1: Roger Lowenstein joins us, uh, his book America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866 I guess then w- w- this month has obviously kind of been the target for uh, people that follow the Federal Reserve and, and uh, seemingly we're going to see some sort of bump in interest rates but seemingly the the concept is out there that it, it's going to have to be slow and steady To I don't want to use the term win the race, race, because, God forbid, I don't think, you know, I don't know if we'll ever win the race, but still, slow and steady has to be the path right now.
0: Well, that seems to be what um, the Federal Reserve Board is telegraphing. Uh, That was certainly um, uh, the last time uh, interest rates were raised, Uh, you know, it was a a quarter point uh, session after session, you know, in the the early to uh, mid-2000s. You know, there's no law that says that the Federal Reserve has to be slow and steady. By the way, there's no law that says the Fed can't. uh, surprise markets. If it if it decides that conditions warrant a surprise, but, you know I, I sort of think that markets are a little more grown up than than the Fed gives its credit for, and and it shouldn't worry all the time so much about um, the expectations of markets. Uh, you know, look, let the Fed get policy right, and markets will adjust. Um, you know, we've we've endured surprises before. Um, you know, we'll live through them again.
1: The other uh, if, if final thing to bring up is, is the fact that uh, if, if you go back in, in time, as you kind of alluded to before, the, the banking industry really wasn't a, a, a in great favor with a lot of people uh, in, in the United States back then. It certainly obviously hasn't been for the last several years. And we still have a, a kind of a divide now that we had back then from the people who are the haves and the
0: have-nots. That's right. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a sort of natural conflict. Um, where, uh, there's a tendency of people to want to uh, make banks hold a whole lot of capital so that they're safer, yep. for obvious reasons. Uh, and, and nonetheless, we want banks to lend. And right now, there's a terrific tension going on uh, at the Federal Reserve in particular about whether or not... Uh, they should, record, and banks have already been made to, to hold more capital since financial crisis. But should they be made to hold even more capital per loan out, which really means for the capital they have, they're going to issue fewer loans? I just want to say that this was also a very great problem in 1907 because there was no Fed Reserve. There were requirements about banks having to basically lock up a ton of capital in their vaults. Mm-hmm. That capital, therefore, was not out in society uh, generating loans. And there's a tension there. Therefore, you don't want to go too far in either direction. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.